0: Section 5 Personal Recollections of Early Melbourne and Victoria This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. Personal Recollections of Early Melbourne and Victoria by William Westgarp Section 5. The Melbourne Corporation, 1842. When forty winters shall besiege thy brow, and dig deep trenches in thy winter's field. Shakespeare, Sonnet 2. The corporation arose towards the end of 1842, and then the anti-stump warfare began. My friend Henry Condal, like so many other early birds, a Tasmanian—a Vandemonian was the ill-omened name at that time—was the first mayor. The times were bad, and the shilling rating caused a growl, but the new body held its way. John Charles King, an ulcer man, and of good abilities, was the first town clerk. His successor, William Kerr, had greater abilities— but not equal method and activity. Both were strong orange men, a feeling, however, for which this colonial ground was not favourable. The ban and bottomless deep for the corporation's narrow budget was Elizabeth Street, where a little casual called the Williams, of a mile's length, from the hardly perceptible hollows of the present royal park, played sad havoc at times with the unmade street. It had scooped out a course throughout, almost warranting the title of a gully, and at Town End's Corner we needed a good long plank by way of a bridge. At the upper end of the street was a nest of deep channels, which damaged daily for years the springs and vehicles of the citizens. The more knowing of us who lived northwards, Dodge these evils by a particular roundabout via Swanson Street, up almost to gold diggings and Victorian parliaments, did the great Sydney Road begin thus inauspiciously, and hardly less pertinaciously disconcerting was the Brunswick Swamp, three miles further on. Melbourne missed a great chance in filling up with a street this troublesome, and, as a street, unhealthy hollow, Dr. Howard used to tell me he never could cure a patient resident there who had become seriously unwell. A reservation of the natural grass and gum trees between Queen and Swanson streets would have redeemed Melbourne up to the first rank of urban scenic effect, and the righteous Williams might, with entire usefulness, have subsided into a succession of ornamental lakes and fish ponds. Early Suburban Melbourne Oh, for a lodge in some vast wilderness. Cowper. Far from the madding crowds. Ignoble strife. Gray. In 1844 I lived in a little cottage at South Yarra, on the Dandenong or Gardiner's Creek Road, then only a bush-track, although considerably trodden. I had not many neighbours. Mr. Jackson, at the far end, had bought Toorak, but not yet built upon it, and the near end was graced by Mr. R. H. Brown's pretty villa, in its ample grounds, sold shortly before to Major Davidson, and constituting the palace of its time along the road." There was a trackless forest opposite us, and more than once I missed my way in trying to make a straight cut to the present St. Kilda. One Sunday morning I made a discovery, a small sheet of water, glittering in the sunshine, and I long gazed admirably on the countless insects and plants about its edges. It was confessedly neither broad nor deep, and a certain tag-rag indefiniteness of outline gave occasion afterwards to envious anti Piranhas, or about to make it out as only a swamp. The little thing had much badgering to endure in this way in Peran's early progress. Later on I saw it as a sort of central reserve of the ever-rising Puran, but still later it was drained off and turned about its business." as either a profitless nuisance, or a too costly ornamentation, sick transit, etc. The following year, 1845, in which my worthy old friend, Alfred Ross, joined me in business in the market square, then a place of the very smallest pretensions compared to now, I rented with him the allotment next beyond the Mares. It had been vacant since its previous occupancy three years before by Mr. P. W. Welsh, already spoken of, one of the earliest and largest, best known, and least fortunate of Melbourne's early merchants, that the bad times that had brought many of us to the ground had then not quite passed, although they had by this time evidently bottomed, may be judged by the fact that we got a fairly habitable large cottage, with twenty-five picturesque acres, and the remains, such as they were, of a garden for thirty pounds a year. Five years earlier, some thousands a year would have been needed to live in such a place. Eight years later, it was worth, for mere site value, probably thirty thousand pounds. I am afraid to say what it may not be worth. Probably most of it is long ago cut up into streets and town lots, like Major Davidson's paddock alongside, which, consisting of some twelve acres next to the Dandenong Road, realised in 1854 under gold discovery stimulus no less than 17,000 pounds such are a few specimens of colonial ups and downs. Here, too, we made acquaintance, pleasant and long protracted, with our neighbours, the gallant Major, since Colonel Davidson, his quiet and amiable wife, and Missy, as she was called, their only child, then of seven years, but in due time, a surpassingly accomplished young lady." who was married to the son of Colonel Anderson, and still survives in London. She has confessed to me since that she used then to look up to me with great awe and regard, not merely. I hope because I was so much the senior. Only one other incident here, one dark night, towards the fall of summer, detained by business longer than usual, We lost our way as we walked home, distance hardly two miles. After some dandering about, in order to strike the corner of Major Davidson's fence, which was as good to us as at home, we caught glimpse of a light, which in that place we knew must be a stranger. Then, as we approached, there were figures and voices. Who should this be but old Liadette? from the beach, with a section of his family who, having an outing in Melbourne, had liked ourselves, stayed too late, and were now hopelessly at sea, and far out of their track, in groping their way back. They offered us a share of quarters, as it seemed useless to try the pathless forest any longer, but we were too sure of our whereabouts to give up the game so easily, and after some more perambulating, we struck the fence. In spite of the attractions and economies of Temp, for that, I think, was the name it's ambiguously held. We quitted South Yarra within the same year for a still greater bargain and temptation in the opposite direction, where I had just then the chance of picking up at an old song, the pretty cottage previously occupied by Mr. Locke, on the Merry Creek, four miles north by the Sydney Road. Besides the presentable cottage, there was a large, well-stocked garden, at an acre cultivation field, and a small natural park, vulgarly Paddock, in all forty-six acres, for fifty pounds, plus three hundred pounds of inevitable mortgage. I called it Merrifield after my parental home in Edinburgh, and reveled in grapes, plums, and peaches, and much other country happiness. When a host of visitors on a bright summer day would rather strain the narrow larder, I used to divert the party into the garden, where they could complete their meal, although at times with inconvenient demand, from the male section at least, upon the brandy. When, in 1854, I resold the lot to Mr. David Moore, under the heavy temptation of six thousand pounds, he took the warrantable liberty of a slight nominal alteration to Moorfield, while at the same time he erased poor old cottage for something more accordant with great Golden Victoria.' In this case, I had a rather striking illustration of the old land transfer and other law costs in from which my late friend, Sir R. R. Torrens, has so effectually relieved these colonies, and that too, as I believe, owing to the multiplied transactions, without any real detriment to our many legal friends. Pounds were pounds in those economy-needing times, and as the Savings Bank had, after a thorough overhaul, accepted the title before giving its loan, I declared myself perfectly satisfied to proceed at once to the conveyance. But no, that was impossible. The courtesies, the practice, the established rights, in short of ancient custom, required all to be done over again in attested copies of title, drafts of title, as to defects for counsel's opinion, and so on, even if all the paper and verbiage were to go straight to the waste-basket, and thus a not over-convenient bill of about seventy pounds was rolled up. But I must at the same time bear in mind that this heavy drag applied to all land property, restricting business in it, and reducing its value. Had Torren's act been then in action, I could not possibly, with the resulting higher value of land, have secured my bargain at the fifty pounds, probably not even at fifty plus the seventy. THE EARLY SQUATTING TIMES Our life, exempt from public haunt, finds tongues in trees, books in the running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in everything, as you like it. The title Victoria did not come to us until, on 1st July 1851, we bloomed into an independent colony, having succeeded, after a good deal of struggle and contention, in getting separated from our mother, New South Wales who complimented us by being very loath, and even angry, that so very promising a child should be detached from her. We had begun as the southern or Port Phillip district of that spacious colony, which had already dropped South Australia, and eight years afterwards was to lose yet another arm in Queensland.' I recall with interest and pleasure some early trips into the interior, when it was in a very different condition from now, when the indigenous reigned almost uninvaded throughout, and when Aboriginal natives were in many places as plentiful as colonists. For some years squatting life was the predominant, or rather all, but the sole feature, of the interior beyond Melbourne, The little capital was at first always called The Settlement, a distinctive title, however, which was just expiring when I arrived. But for some years after, the term settler always meant a squatter, and not a farmer, as might be supposed, with his settled or fee-simple home. My first trip to the interior was— towards the end of 1841, to the sheep station of my old friend, Sam Jackson, situated on the deep creek, seventeen miles northward from Melbourne. There I first tasted damper, and saw the novelties of squatting life. Samuel and his brother William, nicknamed for some reason the General, were of the very earliest from over the Straits. William having been one of the party organised and sent over in August, 1835, by Faulkner, Sam followed soon after, and they took up this station on the deep creek, under the natural impression that to be so near the settlement must be an advantage. They soon found it otherwise for more than one reason, the constant tramp of sheep passing over their run, to go beyond them exposed their ground to infection, especially from scab, and they were exposed in another way, hardly less costly and far more annoying, for every traveller, whether bonfied or not, claimed quarters at the Jacksons, and made the sheep disappear of a hungry morning, with marvellous rapidity, and at a time when, with the demand for livestock to fill up the empty country, their value had risen to forty shillings each and upwards. The general had mainly to sustain this attack, as his brother was generally in Melbourne practising professionally as an architect, and was engaged at that very time in building the Scots church in Collins Street. Naturally enough he would fain have turned somewhat the flank of this invading host, but, without being successful, his efforts only got him the name of Hungry Jackson. Later on, I met further variety of early squatting life in a trip to the Werribee Plains, where some friends, the Pinkertons from Glasgow, and Mr. James Skeels, late merchant and chief magistrate of Leith, had their respective stations, On those vast plains extending westwards thirty to forty miles, from Melbourne to the Anarchies, or Station Peak, the slight and scattered squatting invasion had hardly disturbed anywhere the indigenous features. Thus, over a vast solitude, we reveled in much of specially Australian scenery, particularly that of tortuous and deeply excavated creeks with their chains of ponds or waterholes, the running stream mostly dried up, indeed sometimes for whole years together, but all characterised, more or less, by irresistible rushes after heavy rains, sweeping all before them, including not seldom the sheep, and even the homestead, of the incautious or inexperienced settler. I have a striking contrast in store when I revisit those plains, which now resound to the traffic of road and railway, and to the busy hum of many towns and villages, and of farming and gardening life. As early as 1842 I paid a pleasant visit to pretty little Geelong, and thence on to beautiful and diversified, but then almost empty Colock meeting at either one or other place, Mr. Duncan Hoyle and his two sisters, the Messrs. Hardy of Leith, who were then or after the husbands, respectively, of these ladies, Messrs. Hugh and Andrew Murray, and Mr. Augustus Morris of Colac, who entertained us hospitably at the huts, as station homesteads were then humbly designated and who poured out upon us interminable colonial experiences in a clear, penetrating voice, from which there was no escape. But we did not wish to escape, and so we enjoyed everything. Mr. Morris, who is now a prominent and useful man in Sydney, came early from across the Straits with the tide, and settled here, and after some few years passed through rather trying times, which were not perhaps quite so profitable as he expected. He was induced to sell out to the famous Mr. Benjamin Boyd, who, arriving unexpectedly just before this time from London, in his fine yacht, had descended upon quiet, plodding Melbourne, like a dives of unfathomable wealth. He had made a hasty run up to Colac, seen and appreciated Morris, bought him out, and left him in charge of this first of many purchases of the great Australian Wool Company, or whatever other title was to suit the great schemes of this busy head which had turned up amongst us. Mr. Boyd's main idea of buying up squatting property, during the reaction sure to follow, the early speculation excitement of 1837 to 1840, was no bad business project, or at all unskilfully formed. He gave Morris seven shillings a head for his sheep, but the fall went on continuously into 1844, so that Boyd effected large purchases at rates as low, in some cases in the Sydney district, as even one shilling a head besides cattle and horses, at relatively the same. The result, however, was sad and terrible. It was confusion and failure, and mainly for this simple reason that human nature, left practically uncontrolled, will never give the due care and attention to interests which are only those of other people. He had got up, a bank specially for the supply of all the needed funds for his grand schemes, thus securing, as he put it, an independently large business for that institution. The chief shareholders knew, or might have known, the character of their prospects. They all expected unusual profits under the circumstances, and might possibly have got them. Under this pleasant result, they would have credited, chiefly, their own sagacious courage, but instead they realised most severe loss, and then, with angry unanimity, they condemned, and would have prosecuted Boyd. Wrath fell upon the younger brother, Mark, who had stayed at home, and who, I think, had honestly but vainly striven to keep an intelligible reckoning out of the confusing advices of his senior's various and huge money-absorbing speculations. There was a sad uncertainty about Mr. Boyd's ending. The local representatives, for the time, of the Royal Bank of Australia had closed accounts with him in the best way they could, allowing him to leave Sydney with his yacht and several friends. He visited the Californian diggings, and afterwards took a cruise among the Pacific Islands. He landed on one of them, as though for some shooting, but was never either seen or heard of more. Another pleasant trip about this time was to Yering, the Ryrie Station, situated nearly halfway up the cool mountainous sources of the River Yarra, This had already been made a charming home to any contented mind, satisfied to fall back upon country resources. It was a cattle station, for, in the thickly wooded hills, hollows and flats about sheep could not live, at least to any purpose, and the homestead had the importance of a little straggling street, with the main dwelling at the top, as the end of a cul-de-sac and the dairy and what not in marshalled line below. We reveled in pastoral abundance. I wandered into the adjacent woods, experiencing the sense of overpowering grandeur amidst their vast solitudes. With the gum-trees rising straight above me, with colossal stems, not seldom three hundred feet, and more in height, and a hundred feet, or even much more, from the ground without a branch. When this red gum has elbow room, it expands in all variety of form, attaining in favouring circumstances vast dimensions, as in one example met within the Dandenong Ranges, which measured four hundred and eighty feet in height. But in this urine case, crowded as they were impoverishly together about flats of the river, they did not bulk out into such dimensions, but they shot up side by side, straight as arrows, rivals en route to the clouds. Sad changes came to Yering's happy and hospitable owners since, for, like many others, they had to realize in the bad times and to quit a most pleasant home. But Yering itself has thriven and has since advanced into a great wine producing district whose wines mr de castella its later owner has made to carry prizes even at european exhibitions end of section 5